Ask the questions, bridge keeper. I'm not afraid. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Hello, and welcome to Ad Nerdium. I am your host, Patrick Salerno, and today with me, I have two wonderful guests, Clark and Ashley Oliver. Say hello, friends. Hello, friends. (laughs) So Clark and Ashley are two wonderful cosplayers and all-around nerds who have... uh, don't want to cause any age problems, but they have been around for, let's say, many years in the cosplay scene. Um, It's true. (laughs) Clark is is celebrating his fourth week of retirement after almost 30 years uh, as a firefighter. Yes, a little more than 30 years, but yes. A little more than 30 years. How's that feeling? Uh, It's good. It, It feels real good to not have to go to work. Especially at a time when uh, you probably shouldn't be going out. <clears throat> That's fair. Uh, the uh, pandemic is one of the reasons why I retired, but it's it's been going well. And Ashley, you ran a business uh, for about a decade as well, specifically catering to the cosplay and convention scene. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Sure, yeah. Um, I started my little company, Corsair's Boutique, back um, a out, I guess it would be uh, 12 years ago and it started as a side job that really just blossomed into something that needed me to do it full-time and it was an adventure <laughs> that is probably the best way to describe it it took me all over the country I met so many wonderful people um, I met so many friends doing it too in the cosplay community and I, I wouldn't change it. I, I'm really glad I did it, but I'm also glad I'm not doing it anymore because it was a little tiring. I can imagine. I remember seeing you at these events, uh, always work and always being the awesome saleswoman that you were. Um, and that fits very nicely into today's topic, uh, cosplay and community. Um, I'm interested in starting actually with you, Clark. Can you tell us a little bit about your first experience with cosplay and conventions? <laughs> well, uh, my first convention was in 1976, and that was Washington, D.C.'s first Star Trek convention uh, ever. Uh, and I, uh, uh, my dad took me, God bless him. Uh, and I, I think I was probably wearing, I most likely wearing one of my uh, Don Moore Trek shirts that, you know, there's actually that I got my fourth grade picture taken in. Uh, and I had never, I had never been to anything like that before, obviously. I was only eight uh, or 76, or, yeah, eight. Uh, and uh, the only real, the, the only guests I remember were the four supporting actors of the original series. Obviously, Shatner and Nimoy and, and Kelly were not there, mm. but the other four were. Uh, and um, uh, I, uh, I remember asking George Takei a technical question in the in the question answer session about how they did the um, uh, transporter effect, and he explained it. And then years later, when I saw him at another convention, I mentioned it to him, and he actually remembered that I had. And uh, that I had asked a technical question and not a filmmaking question and not really a, you know, you know, 
what's your favorite episode sort of question. But that's where I first came in contact with lots of people in costume. And of course, the dealer's room where I salivated over a uh, Brad Nelson phaser prop that had a strobe light in it and made a warbling sound. And it was only $100 <laughs> in 1976. And my father said, son, let's, let's get something like a little less expensive. And then uh, came, back to, came back to it in the 90s, I guess, when, when uh, Star Trek Next Generation was hitting its stride and started attending uh, some local cons here and there. So there was like a 20 year gap between uh, your first convention and when you started going again? Uh, yeah, I'd say that's probably about accurate. Yeah. So in my late 20s, I started attending cons again. Yeah. How was it, um, even just with those 20 years, um, how was the difference in, in the scene and the vibe and the culture that was forming? Well, I'd say it was pretty much the same. What has what is more amazing, I think, and how is how everything has changed since 1996 when I started going back to it uh, and how everybody's game has been upped to a level uh, that's would be, um, well, but to a level that's good enough to have been original cost costuming. And in fact, in a lot of cases, it's better than what the original actors would have had. I've met with some of the Battlestar, the 78 Battlestar Galactica stars, the, the big three of those. And they would always say that my cost, the costume that I was wearing was better than the ones they had. <laughs> of course, uh, things made for film back then the, the quality was always lower because the film didn't have resolution to pick it up now. Of course, the high def uh, video that everybody's shooting, the costumes have to be absolutely flawless. Uh, but it's changed more in the last 20 years than it had in the 20 years previous to that. And I'd say that's probably, you know, the, the internet and the sharing of ideas and, and uh, all the stuff that goes on outside of the actual convention uh, yeah. where people are sharing ideas. Well, Ashley, I'm I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Having worked in the industry, worked in the convention industry, particularly with cosplayers as a seamstress and running a booth that uh, makes costume pieces specifically, uh, I'm wondering if you can comment on the changes in the convention scene culture and the cosplay culture more broadly. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. The change from when I started personally costuming has just been it's exploded. Even when I had my first booth, um, my own quality was good, but I found after a year or two, I would have to change my ideas because everything was evolving so much that you really had to try to keep up with what was going to be the next big thing. And everybody's game really just increased over the last 10 years. I can remember, I, I think the funniest thing I like to talk about is when I started costuming, when I started my company, patterns for costumes didn't exist. Mm. The, the joke is, you know, back in my day, I had to take three different patterns and put them together and make it work. Well, now you can go to Joann's or Michael's and you can pick up already done costume patterns that are, you know, pretty good. They might need some tweaks here or there, but it's, you know, it's a pretty good base. It's not like what I was having to do when it started. Uh, but I remember there was a period from, it was like 2006 to about 2009, where I really saw a huge increase in the quality of costumes that people were bringing to conventions. 
And it became sort of a double-edged sword because while yes, the quality was going up, the people who didn't have the skills to do the higher quality stuff were kind of getting like pushed back a little bit. So I think we've come full circle with that a bit, but then also I think everybody's being a little kinder these days, which is good. You see such a broad spectrum now of different skill levels and everybody's always improving. Yeah, there seems to be a very wide mix. Um, you have the the social aspects of cosplay and obviously the technical aspects. And I think the cosplay community has grown far beyond, and you mentioned this earlier, Clark, far beyond the the limits of the convention floor. I mean, all three of us have our own cosplay Instagram accounts, our nerdy cosplay accounts that we use to stay in touch with our these friends, this community. And it, for me at least, it's raised a lot of questions about, you know, what are the, the boundaries of this community? What does it mean for a culture to exist? You know, cosplay doesn't really have its own leader or its defined limits of where it can go. I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts on that about like, what does it mean for this thing, this craft, this hobby to actually be a community? Well, we met because of the community. <laughs> yeah. I guess the, 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 the first organization I really joined was the 501st Legion. Actually, no, that's I take that back. Rebel Legion was the first one I joined. The 501st was the first one I came in contact with when running a call with the fire department actually at a local movie theater there was a lone stormtrooper in armor and this had to have been about 2003 or something like that 2002 mm. who was just standing outside the theater I, one of the one of the movies i guess was in i guess it was attack of the clones was it was in the theaters at the time and so i skidded to a stop in front of him and said, where did you get this armor and he started going to this you know and i'm like well i gotta run this call actually <laughs> So, but but it, as it turns out, the guy was the uh, the CEO of, of our old line garrison, which is uh, our local garrison then. And, and I, I managed to track him down sometime later. And funny thing, he lived not three or four miles from where I did at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I joined up with that crowd. And by that time, I had already you know built a Han Solo costume. My, my entry into costuming was making props. So I had been on the replica props forum. And... Uh, learning how to build these various things and well i've got i got the blaster i probably should get the rest of the outfit because even as a kid i never really i had some of the action figures but i but i really wanted to be the action figure you know <laughs> wanted wanted to dress up you know like like my heroes and and do something a little different and also that whole world was uh, an, an escape from me from younger when i was when i was bullied when i was a kid about being a science fiction nerd so I think that cosplay has really allowed the kids who were bullied for being a science fiction nerd to find community in these other people with like-minded ideas and interests. And where they're safe to. Yeah. Explore. So it, it creates a nice, nice kind of safe space. Cause when you would do your prop building, you would go to prop parties yeah. Two people would host prop parties. You could do armor building. Well, this is taking it back. I don't know if people still do those anymore, but they're, they're so fun, but you're right. It's not, it's not like a normal community and it doesn't really have a boundary to it because so many people experience it in so many different ways. I've watched, you know, people at cons who are dressed uh, as characters from the same uh, series get really excited seeing someone else and they just run up to that person like they've known them forever and they just met in that moment. 
and that could create a lifelong friendship. And I don't think that's something I've ever really seen outside of the costuming community, which I think is just magnificent that that's a thing. And it, it does bring people together. It you know brought Clark and I together. It's given us a ton of friends that we spend time with, not just at conventions. We've created a little family around the cosplay community and the people we've met doing it. I think for me personally, I couldn't agree more. Um, the level of friendship and kindness with these people in this community. Uh, again, especially being a, a younger cosplayer, uh, and you know, I primarily do cosplays with my father, and that was just kind of a social bonding thing for the two of us. Even as like this kind of young kid in a room full of adults, uh, you know, there was always that acceptance, and they weren't really judging me. I wasn't, you know, Michael's kid. I was Patrick or whoever I happened to be dressed up as that day. And so even as uh, a younger kid with a grown-up, even though I was already in college by the time we really started to do with this, the, the acceptance, I think, is something that is a hallmark of the community. Um, and I want to touch on something that you had mentioned, Ashley, and maybe uh, expand upon that a little bit more. Because you, you said earlier that there was that time when the initial rise in quality started to happen, there seemed to almost be a divide or like a rupture in, in this community because of uh, a perfectionist mindset, I guess. Uh, yeah. Could you guys elaborate on that? Um, I, I would say a lot of that started around the time of, I don't know if you even remember this show, it was very short-lived, Heroes of Cosplay. I do. I do. Um, that was such an interesting time in the cosplay community in general because it could have gone one or two ways and it ended up going the way of people wanting to be that perfection, to get on the show, to have the same quality as people like Yaya Han who had been costuming for, gosh, I mean, I think over a decade by that point, maybe more. So there were definitely people who had the skills to put out these beautiful, elaborate costumes, but then there were people who were just starting out. And in certain communities, like little smaller communities inside the bigger community, like the Rebel Legion and the 501st, there is that quality that is put above everything else. So if you don't have the skills, or at the time, if you didn't have the skills to get yourself to that level, I did witnessed some issues where the people who had the higher quality costumes kind of turned into bullies against the people who weren't as talented. And I found that very interesting because I always felt that the cosplay community was full of people who had been bullied and shamed for the things that they liked when they were younger because they weren't trendy or popular. And I think just like any community, you can have the bullies, you can have the people who look down on others for not being as skilled. And I always tried to keep the mindset of we all started somewhere with it. Uh, me, my first sewing project, I still have it upstairs as a reminder that that's, we all start somewhere and it's nobody ever comes out the gate perfect. So it's always an evolving skill, I think. But that time period was so interesting because it went from basically people altering things that were already store-bought or kind of using just the run-of-the-mill patterns that were available like generic princess and turning it into what you wanted into this like just amazing phenomenon where people were starting to experiment with 
putting other patterns together and different techniques and like looking for those little accurate tidbits. It was, it was very interesting to watch. I, I credit some of it to Lord of the Ring because mm. I feel that, yeah, we had movies over the years that had very intricate things and stuff, but the costumes weren't really that in your face as the way the Lord of the Rings ones were. I remember everybody wanted an Arwen dress. There was like so many Arwen dresses because they're just so beautifully done. So people were going out and working with materials that maybe they wouldn't have before, but they were taking that risk. And I think that's really where we started to see that turn of people really doing these very intricately done outfits. And also what, uh, one thing that really helped the whole community is a DVD you could freeze frame. Because yeah. I, some of my earlier, some of my earlier, and now reference photos, but back in the, you know, dark ages before the internet, like you'd get to get, if you wanted to replicate a Star Wars costume, you'd have to get like a VHS tape and then pause it with all the lines on the screen. Uh, and then what I had to do was like uh, with a protractor, up against the screen, measuring the angles on a certain helmet so that I could, you know, get the angles right. So the the, the ability to have reference photos of screen-used items uh, is, uh, ha has really upped everything, everybody's game, because there's so much reference photos about it. Now, that's a, that's a double-edged sword, because now that you have all these reference photos, if you really want to be screen accurate, you have to replicate those precisely. Whereas we could kind of fudge the details before because, well, everything was fuzzy on the screen with the VHS. There certainly is this democratization of cosplay and of nerd culture in general, thanks to technology and the internet. And that show that you mentioned, Here's a Cosplay, I do remember it vividly because it did spark questions in my head. Uh, uh, I think it was the sci-fi channel that was running it, uh, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yeah. And in a way when they were producing that show and bringing on, you know, these experts, quote unquote, they were trying to make a statement that these people are the leaders of this community. And sci-fi in its own way was trying to brand itself as a leader in cosplay or a definer of the community. And in a way it did happen in that. I think it rose some some people to fame it tried to turn it into reality tv with the drama and with the pop figures and the icons and the influencers before really the age of influencers fully started yeah because nowadays everybody has an instagram account and there's so many people that are trying to be these cosplay influencers do you see there being a leader in cosplay is there a defining figure have we gotten I don't there? Think so. I don't, and I don't think that, I don't think we have one. And I don't think that there can be one because you have so many smaller communities that build up the cosplay community as a whole that I don't think that there can be a leader because somebody who likes anime might not like Star Wars or somebody who is into Lord of the Rings might not like, you know, Legend of Zelda or something. So there's so many different genres involved in the cosplay community that I don't think one person could take on that task. I think there's a group that's far and away that's that's taken the lead in all this and that's the anime kids. I'm constantly <laughs> I'm amazed like I'm not in I'm not in a, my anime was you know Star Blazers and Speed Racer. I mean that's how far back I go. Uh, and I don't know 
when I, and I've been to anime conventions, I've been to Ketsukon, I've been to Otakon, and I have no idea what 90% of these people are cosplaying, but the quality of what they're, of what they're coming in and the amazing work that they can do with like craft foam is unreal. And I think they, and especially when you're trying to replicate a costume that's a cartoon, uh, I'm absolutely blown away by the creativity of the anime kids who are building these things with, with, with hot glue and, and craft foam and temper of paints, like in their, you know, apartments. They're amazing. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away. But when I go on uh, occasions, I've been to Katsukon to just buy the absolute kaleidoscope of stuff that they have, they have made. It's just, it's really amazing. They're, they're, they're leading, they're leading all of this, I think. And they're all very enthusiastic about it. And they're always just happy to be there. I've yeah. noticed that. I yeah. always find them to be uh, so upbeat. And so, I mean, I can, I think I can partially agree with that. I mean, anime could be its own episode and it, it will definitely be its own episode at some point, several, if not a multitude, if this goes on for, you know, years and years and years of people like it. But anime as a whole, I have found, especially because of the fact that it's the way that the, the translations and the licensing works. It's much more community-based and community-led than other fandoms in nerd culture. You know, you look at Star Wars, uh, which was the topic of our first episode. Um, you look at Dungeons and Dragons. You look at Star Trek. They all have big, multi-billion dollar corporations behind them or even above them as parent companies. And the way in which that information is spread, like the, let's say the fan content has to be careful because they don't want to step on any boundaries. They don't want to oh, yeah. cause any issues. Anime, you know, for all its wonders is very commonly pirated. <laughs> it's very yeah. commonly just spread out. <laughs> but on the flip side, it makes it so much more accessible. And so the people that you see who like anime and go to these anime conventions, I think represent a much more diverse population of the nerd culture than other industries have or other fandoms have because of anime's accessibility in that way. And so I'm not surprised that you guys are saying that because um, you see it in their work as well, that it has so much more room to be creative it's always something very noticeable, usually very bright, something def that defines them. That is a little harder to do in live action stuff. That's um, true. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you guys can talk a little bit about where you see this community going, especially in this COVID world, how we've had to kind of reframe and reposition our community. You know, I think the three of us are part of the same cosplay family as you put it yes. um we all know the same people who you know we're all friends on social media i know we had joked around before we realized how serious this pandemic was about you know hold, holding our own mini con outside somewhere um, and just getting the <laughs> friends together to do stuff what do you see with in regards to obviously the current state of the world but also beyond it where do you see this community going it's going to take a long time to bounce back. I mean, uh, conventions were a, uh, a petri dish of disease, you know, before COVID. Uh, everybody, everybody who's been to any more than like more than one or two knows what con crud is. 
and the fact that you're going to feel absolutely hammered flat for several days afterwards just because of the amount of germs you came in contact with. It's going to take a long, long time before cons go back to being what they were, and certainly before I'm going to be comfortable going to them. I don't, I don't know. Maybe the the, the, the younger generation might not have the worry about it, but it's going to be it's going to be a while, I think. On the industry side of it, I think what you're going to see is a lot of the bigger cons will likely survive. But a lot of the smaller ones probably won't because they don't, I don't think that they have the funding to keep going after not having the con for a year or maybe two because we don't know how things are going to be next year. So I think we're going to see less conventions but bigger cons. And I think that once everybody does feel ready to go back to them, I think people are going to be welcomed with open arms because it's something that has become sort of a vacation for a lot of people. I know that when Clark was working, he would use vacation time for conventions because that was the thing that we like to do together. So a lot of people plan their vacations around cons. Look at Dragon Con. There's so many people who take that whole week off and just go down to Atlanta to party it up and enjoy Dragon Con. So I think when when it's able to return to some sort of normalcy, I think it will still, the the con scene will still exist. And I think the costume community as a whole is still plugging on. I've noticed a lot of friends have held off on making costumes this year just because there's no place to wear them. But the second that everything opens up, and everybody's comfortable going again, I think everybody's going to go bonkers and just make all the costumes that were on their list that they put off during the pandemic. So I, I think it'll survive. I just I just don't know how many years we're going to have of not being able to have cons and be around our con family. And even before the uh, before the pandemic, Ashley and I talked a lot about what we called the con bubble which was that these things had grown and grown and grown. And a lot of people saw, oh, well, we can make a ton of money if we just have a convention. Well, they, all the kids will come out and, and, you know, we'll do this, we'll do that. And they, that was starting to already be, uh, the con bubble was already starting to bust. Ashley got out of, I think, got out of the business just before everything went to hell. Um, certainly a lot of people we know who vend cons for a living were already having some difficulty with, the number of cons and the amount of vendors that were there. Like you went, you know, you've been with us to Awesome Con and certainly New York City Comic Con where the vendors hall is just enormous. And it takes a couple, three hours just to walk through it once. And you got to take notes on, you know, anything that you're interested in and, and pretty much write down the coordinates of where it's located <laughs> on the floor so you can find it again. And that, that concerned me even prior to there being a pandemic. I agree. Um, there certainly was that feeling, especially, you know, being a New Yorker myself, the, the most common complaint about uh, NYCC was its size, that it was becoming too big for the Javits Center and that it was too crowded. Uh, there wasn't really any room to get a proper enjoyment of what it was, you know, especially for the cosplay community who loves to take pictures and you know, celebrate the costumes together, there wasn't a whole lot of space in the Javits Center left to do that. 
I remember, um, I don't remember, I don't know if you guys were there that year, but there was a full blown human traffic jam between the main, uh, for those of you who've been to uh, New York Comic Con before, there's the main building uh, that has the show floor, a lot of the panels in it, um, has uh, the food courts in it, and it's that huge, it's, I mean, I say main building, but it's just the main section. And then there is this, hallway that leads to what seems like an aircraft bunker if you were to ask me but that's where they moved uh, artist alley a few years back i don't know if it was still planning on being the same way but the hallway from artist alley into uh the main building was so packed and so congested it became a standstill and nobody knows why I remember there was a dude who I had never met before who was like six foot five. And I'm I'm five foot three for reference for those of you who haven't met me in person. And he, uh, after a couple seconds of conversation, lifted me into the air to use me as like a, a, one of those like, sco- uh, I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> a periscope. A periscope. Thank you. <laughs> and literally would just like, shown me all around, lifting me and like turning me to see what I could see uh, with our combined, you know, eight foot height. And it was just people. It was just too many people trying to go in and too many people trying to go out. And you're right that for the bubble to survive, you can't pop it. And the congestion, the over-marketing of the, of the conventions, of the number of them, had been a real detractor to the, the convention community and the costuming community, the cosplay community as a whole. Yeah, we saw that sort of uh, congestion in the dealer's room. The, I vended, I think, New York Comic Con two years. I, I can't remember if it was two or three years. It was probably two. But you couldn't even walk to the end of your aisle and I was both times I was toward, like sort of towards the end of an aisle but it would take over 20 minutes just to get out of your aisle and go over to either a concession stand or the restroom the bathrooms are horrible. and the restrooms you know there's like four stalls in each bathroom and you've got these thousands upon thousands of people it's it's absolutely outgrown the Javits Center, that's for sure. And there's, like you said, there's no ability to walk. And I think even vendors tend to suffer when that's the case because people don't want to stop at a booth because they spent so long trying to get down the aisle that maybe they are thinking like, well, why am I going to stop here? Because then it's going to take me even longer or I'll lose my place. So New York Comic Con needs something i they've outgrown the javits center but i don't know where they would move it to dragon con's another one i i I quit going to dragon con in 2007 because it was too nuts for me then and i think they had like 20,000 people that year and last year they had some like 80,000 people and i just can't i i can't (laughs) it gives me the cold sweats just think about being around that many people in in an environment like that there's a couple of small cons that i go to just about every year farpoint and surely both are in baltimore one's in the winter one's in the summer and that's nice because it's it's how would you say like a couple thousand people maybe maybe you know and so that's where majority you know that our local those are our two local cons right here awesome cons another one but awesome con is getting bigger every year too and uh, it's, it's nice to go to a, a smaller event 
even though it's a smaller event, those two conventions have been running for so long, like more than 20, 25 years, uh, that they're pretty solid. It's, it's like the, the same people go every year and you see the same people. And it's nice to catch up with them like, you know, twice a year. Oh, hey, how you doing? Yeah, uh, I've always wanted to go to those two. Maybe one day now that I have uh, that now that I'm more local to the Maryland, Baltimore area. Now yeah. you are a Marylander. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far yet. <laughs> I think New Yorker status, like, you know, <laughs> supersedes well, the Maryland. When I, when I finally like Old Bay, and that might be the most controversial thing said on the show so far, <laughs> when I finally like Old Bay, then I will say I have become a local. <laughs> so to wrap up, how would you, or what would you say are both the defining qualities and the detracting qualities of the cosplay community? Well, you meet a, a whole lot of really knowledgeable people uh, doing this who a lot of times will have actually worked on some of the entities that you're cosplaying. There are lots of people that I met in the Replica Props community who worked actively in the business. Adam Savage of Myth Mythbusters being one, uh, fellow Replica Props uh, community member. I, I always, Todd Blatt is one of them. You should probably talk to him. When he first started coming around old line garrison armor parties, he was like like 18 years old. He's like, hi guys, I do 3, 3D printing. And we basically turned to him and said, all right, the grownups are talking now, Sonny, sit down and watch how it's really done. Little did we know that the guy's an ace at it and he his his business and what he does has just, his app has taken off and he, he made us all look like chumps, which we were. <laughs> uh, that's the detracting part of it is that, is that if you really start thinking that you're, you know, hot S and you've got all the answers, um, you got to be careful not to treat the new people that come around, you know, as there's a quote, you know, young minds, fresh ideas, be tolerant. That somebody's going to come around with a new way of doing things. And 3D printing is totally revolutionized. Um, at least the prop building aspect of cosplay and props and cosplay go hand in hand, literally. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have hanging right here on my wall, three, you know, lightsabers um, that I built as like pretty close to the real thing, replica props, but the problem and, and a Han Solo blaster that weighs like five pounds. But the problem is, is that you always, if you're a cosplayer, you've got to think about schlepping this stuff around a con floor for hours on hours which is why when your father wanted to do old Ben Kenobi, I said, let's get you a 3D printed lightsaber that weighs almost nothing so that it won't drag down on your belt and smack you in the thigh when you're walking around. The, 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 the people who have the knowledge of what they're doing is an attraction, but sometimes these same people get an elitist sort of view and think that they're all that's, you know, that they're, they're the end all be all and they're not because they're always, there's always new stuff coming along. So as long as you thread the middle there, you'd be all right. I will say um, I'm always fascinated by the tricks that you pick up of how to make the costume work. That the, the, the front side is always looks one way, but the inside always is just completely different from however you would imagine it. Um, adding in like secret pockets or like, you know, I know people have put in like water vents to make sure that they can drink if they're wearing like the full yeah. body armor suits, cooling vents, things for their cell phones, just the, the, the creativity behind 
behind it, I think actually can make some of these costumes, as you mentioned, better than what's on screen. Uh, it looks screen accurate, and it is 10 times more functional than what the actors had to go through. Yeah. Um, Ashley, what about you? Well, I would say that some of the top qualities are basically people are so kind and so willing to help each other to get to that top level that a lot of people are seeking. There are so many forums out there now. There's so much information out there now. Most people are super willing to help each other with sharing this knowledge, sharing this information, sharing these resources. So now people don't have to, I guess, try to do it on their own. They have that community. But with having the community, the negative parts are the elitism, which, you know, Clark mentioned, Um, you know, you have groups like Revolution and 501st that are the elitist of elite and sometimes detrimentally so. Um, And then you have people who think because their costume might look better than somebody who just started out that they're superior, but the reality is they're not. So I think it's just the same kind of problems you would encounter in any sort of group or community. There's, there's always going to be that, that type of conflict, I guess. But I think overall as a whole, uh, the cosplay community has more positives going for it than negatives. Uh, And I think Uh, so too. You know, I think the cosplay, as we've kind of touched on, going to like the main theme of this podcast, it really is this interconnecting glue of that celebration of nerd culture. You know, we've talked about, I think we've name dropped just about every fandom there is um, <laughs> in this episode. Because what it does, it's, it's a way, I think, for us to celebrate the stories in a very personal way. And so the community, the borderlands of this community is very fluid because it exists within the individual celebrations itself of, let's say, Star Wars, as, as we've mentioned several times, of anime. But it also exists independently from that within the creator's space as well. So it, it is a community that always fascinates me with how intertwined it is in so much of nerd culture. That is where we'll end it for today. Uh, Clark and Ashley, where can people find you if they want to see more of your work? Well, I am on Instagram under Adventures of a Geeky Housewife. And I'm also on Instagram, Luke Warmwater Cosplays. That is wonderful. You can check out my cosplay page, which I have not mentioned yet, at One Does Not Simply Cosplay. That's O-D-N-S Cosplay. Uh, So check us all out. See the work that we're doing. Um, Thank you again for watching this episode of Ad Nerdium. As always, please subscribe to the Radio Free George SoundCloud to stay up to date on episodes. You can also check us out on Spotify and Stitcher. Please follow us on Instagram at Ad Nerdium Pod. If you have questions, email us at adnerdiumpod at gmail.com. As always, I am Patrick. I'm Clark. And Ashley. Signing off. Live long and prosper. Hey, everyone. And thanks for tuning in to this episode of Ad Nerdium, brought to you by Radio Free George. Please tune in every week for a brand new episode where we bring on new guests and discuss exciting topics in nerd culture and society. At the end of every month, come chill out with us on The Stasis Chamber, a special episode where we and our guests comment on the topics of the last month. Have topics you think we should explore? Email us at adnerdiumpod at gmail.com. 
Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at Podcast, and subscribe to our podcast channel on Podbean at at Pod for all of our latest episodes. To check out our archive, be sure to visit us at our SoundCloud at at Podcast. This is Patrick Salerno, your humble host and friend on this journey, and as always, live long and prosper.